Today's episode of The Full 60 is brought to you by Game Time. All right, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think NHL tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is a leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. Two. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download the Game Time app in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score some last minute tickets. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full 60. This week's guest is Bruce Arthur, who is the sports columnist at the Toronto Star. And if you don't know Bruce, and I'm assuming you do, but let's say the outside chance you don't know Bruce, he is one of the most talented writers there there is like he's he is regardless of if he's writing about sports or sometimes he's just writing about life as we get into um he is a must read when he publishes especially and this is one of the reasons why i wanted to have him on right now especially when the world of sports kind of delves outside the world of sports and and we saw what was happening with the nba in china and and he wrote about it and I think that's something that impacts all of sports in the NHL. And that's where we start in this conversation. But also, selfishly, there was so much I want to talk to Bruce about. Um, some of the stories that I that still that he's written that still stick with me and how he balances his life of traveling and raising a family and all these things that him and I tend to talk about. Like he's he's one of those guys when I'm traveling and we're covering a big event, uh, I gravitate towards. I like sharing a meal with Bruce because he has a lot of interests um, outside of sports. We have great, deep conversations. Um, and <laughs> this kind of turned into that. And not for nothing, but Bruce is a great follow on Twitter as well. If, you know, if you don't mind him not sticking to sports, which I'm sure some of you uh, don't always agree with. So it was it was so much fun. Bruce is a good friend, and I hope you enjoy kind of eavesdropping in on us catching up and having this conversation. It was it was great. So let's jump right into it. The full sixty with Bruce Arthur. Well, Bruce, thanks for doing this. I it, it's it's um, aligning our schedules between the million kids that we have running around and <laughs> and the job, etc. This is I'm glad we we're able to thread the needle here. Well, as long as neither of us have offended China yet today. I think we're both doing great, right? We're both, we have no problems in our lives. We can't be it's, solved. It's still early. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to knock on wood. <laughs> well, so uh, let's start there because that you've been kind of knee, knee deep in those waters here you, in, in terms of your coverage of the NBA and, and what's going on there and, and today LeBron James's comments. Um, since this isn't an NBA podcast, I don't want to go too deep into there, but I would be curious because you live in both of these worlds, is there is there a lesson for the NHL in all of this? Well, I mean, the NHL is a little bit protected because, I mean, the NBA set up its first office in China in 1992. The mm. NHL did it in April of this year. So they, they, they're not knee-deep in this yet. But the, the yeah. lesson here is you, when you play with China, you play on their turf and by their rules. Mm. And uh, I would say that 
the NHL is in far less danger of this happening because can you think of an NHL GM who would treat who would tweet free Hong Kong? Like, can you think of an NHL right. player who would say free Hong Kong? Um, it, it, it is an un, no. it's just more much more unlikely um, because the, like the NHL doesn't have they, like they're they're starting in China. They want to be at the the Olympic Games in Beijing because that would be kind of a start for them. But yeah. when you get into bed with China, and this is every company in North America, every major company, you have to be incredibly sensitive to what China wants. And that's what's happened with this, is that China's standards of speech have been imported to the NBA to a degree. And right. for the, it's less of a problem because they've got fewer guys who would speak out. Yeah, I, you're right. I guess the only parallel I, I, you might be able to draw would be occasionally you'll see with NHL players in Russia, right? There's there's players that yeah. come out against yeah. Putin or for Putin and there's some you always suspect there's some sort of restraint or you don't put on the players and what they can and cannot say there. Yeah, well Ovechkin's the biggest booster, right? right. Like Ovechkin is kind yeah. of the the biggest deal. Um and he doesn't get pressed a lot on that because he won't answer those questions, but he you always got to remember with with guys especially from Russia, they come like there was the generation who came and didn't know if they could go back. Right, there was a whole generation yeah. that that basically defected and and didn't know if they would ever see their families again. The guys now get to go home, but that is a very different country than America or Canada. It is right. it's a harder place to grow up. It's a, like read that story that uh, was written about Evgeny Malkin by our friend uh, Rossi. Yeah. Um, like that that's a that's a great piece, but it shows just how different it is. Like he could barely get a weight room. At his right. gym, at his rink in Russia, in Moscow, like it, it, it's a different place. And when they go home, there's a lot more danger. There's a lot more kind of fraught circumstances. So I, I don't always blame NHL Russian players for sucking up to Putin, uh, because that is their home and that's the rules that they work under there. But I do admire the ones who don't. Yeah, I I think part of it is you hear, and you saw this with the players defecting, right? Like they were worried, it was less about themselves and they were worried what would happen to their families left behind. You know what I mean? Like if you're like, screw it, I'm going to go play for the New Jersey Devils that's uh, or Detroit Red Wings, that's great for me. Meanwhile, mom and dad disappear. You know what I mean? Like then what? Yeah, I remember I talked to Sergei Fedorov about that. He was one of the last ones. And he said yeah. it was the loneliest feeling you could imagine, right? Like you you left home and there was not even communication. They would just leave and they were gone. Mm. Uh, and that is the worry. Like Enos Kanter in the NBA, uh, his he's from Turkey and the, his parents have, I think his father's been imprisoned uh, at various points. Um, but that was all, that's always, was always the worry with defectors is you make an example of their family if you need to. Um, and like Ilya Mikheyev is a Leaf now and he's very happy to be a Leaf. He's the happiest guy in the world, a new Russian kid. Um, and he does seem happy, doesn't he? he? He's like the happiest, the happiest <laughs> leaf I've ever seen, probably, other than uh, maybe James Reimer. But it, yeah. like, he, we don't know what worries he has at home, right? We don't know right. where he came from because he, he currently lacks the kind of communication ability to truly tell us and what he really tell us anyway. It, again, it's 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 a very different country. When uh, if you were at the Olympics there, you knew, and you can you can when you talk to the old school Russians, you realize how different it used to be. Mm. So I'm curious when you tackle these topics, because I, I do, I really admire that about you, Bruce, is you are not afraid to wade into this. Like sometimes it's really easy to say, you know, I'm just going to sit this one out 
and mm-hmm. avoid the kind of the because it's uncomfortable, right? As a writer, I, you know, you, you, before you even ask questions, you have to figure you, you have to know what questions to ask, and you have to research the topic, and you have to you got to leave the rink or the courts or whatever. And 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 so, what's your approach when you're like if you're writing? You wrote today about LeBron James and Daryl Morey. Well, like, what was the approach? Like, how much research do you have to do before you dive into that? Well, part of it is, uh, and I appreciate those kind of words, uh, part of it is I, I spend a lot of time reading about stuff that isn't sports. Um, yeah. And if, if knowing what sources you can trust and what sources you can is a huge part, both in terms of people you talk to and stuff you read. Uh, in terms of China, having gone there for the 2008 Olympics and knowing I'm going back there for 2022, uh, I've read about China. I've read about how their human rights record has actually gotten worse in measurable ways between 2008 and 2022. So the idea of the Olympics liberalizing China, I already know. Like if you look at human rights reports, they've they've basically said that that's it's gotten worse. I've read mm. about how Chinese money has infiltrated Hollywood. How in the new Top Gun movie, the Taiwanese flag is no longer on Tom Cruise's jacket, on Maverick's jacket, because mm. that is objectionable, and China has put so much money into Hollywood that it is something that they know like they know that money buys influence uh there was just the uh, one of the things i put in the column uh today is that in one of the transform I, I don't watch the transformers movies i grew up reading transformers i don't watch the transformers movies in transformers age of extinction the cl- the climatic battle scene is for some reason in hong kong and at some point a hong kong official says we must ask for help from the central government and they cut to beijing and an official says the central government will always protect Hong Kong, and that's in a Hollywood movie, right? Hmm. Like so, so you know that that this is the relationship. You, I I know a lot about how entrenched the NBA is with China, and how how significant that relationship is. In that, when Yao Ming was a Houston Rocket, there were other Houston Rockets with shoe deals in China. Because that's how important the team was to China, how it was the most popular team in China. And how the, the more you know about the general kind of atmosphere, then you start. And, and I followed the Hong Kong protests from afar, not as closely as I followed some other stuff. But uh, Hong Kong is not even a really complicated situation. I grew up in Vancouver. Vancouver's real estate went crazy in 1997 because Hong Kong was handed back from Britain to the Chinese. And China said, for 50 years, we will not affect your political or economic uh, systems. And that's starting to break down in the view of many Hong Kong uh, citizens. And so that's that's the problem you have now is you have people fighting for democracy and freedom and you have people who want to take it away. And it's really, really simple. And so when when I go into writing that, I all that's kind of bouncing around in my mind. And it's the same if you write about Russia. Going to Russia for the Olympics was enormously helpful. I talked to every volunteer I could. We were all college kids who had really interesting views of how Russia worked. The more you live in the world, the more you can kind of draw comparisons, the more you can put things in context. If you read David Epstein's new book, Range, he talks about that, how how the more frames of reference you have to compare something to something, the better off you are. And in a really small way, um, one of the great strengths, I think, of Kyle Dubas, the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, is that he looks at other sports and tries to figure out what he can learn from them. And it, there's often a lot of things you can't, but there's things you can. He looks greatly into soccer uh, mm-hmm. as to how he can affect his ideas in 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 terms of like the idea of total football in soccer, Johan Cruyff's total football, uh, of the way teams skill all over at every position, the way they attack 
uh, and swarm with speed and try to take the ball from you and keep it, that is how the Toronto Maple Leafs are in theory built, right? And so the more I, I try to know as much as I can, and if I don't, I try to learn it as fast as I can, because the idea that sports exists in a world that isn't the world is something that I don't think has ever been less true. And this was just one more example of it, the China NBA thing. Yeah. It's funny when you ask which NHL GM could you see saying anything outspoken. I mean, Kyle, and I, and I don't even know if he would, but like, you, if I had to pick one, that probably would be who it would be. He'd be the guy who'd think about it, yeah. And we're saying yeah. this, by the way, on a day where the St. Louis Blues are visiting the White House and laughing at Donald Trump's jokes. So, like, <laughs> right. sticking to sports is a tricky one. Um, but you'll notice that NHL teams tend to go to the White House and NBA teams don't, right? There's, there's, just, there's different frames of reference in every sport. And it is a difficult thing to navigate if you don't live in the wider world to some degree. Because how China does business or how Russia does business... Um, or how other sports do business are really helpful when you're writing about whatever sport you've chosen. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm interested. You mentioned talking to the volunteers. Were you talking about in Sochi when when you yeah. were over there for the Olympics? What did you? Was there a common theme, or what were your impressions of, of that? Well, a lot of them are young, and so they grew up in a Russia that was kind of post post communism, and their but their parents had grown up under communism. And so they did have an appreciation of how much the country had moved economically uh, since the kind of end of communism. But they also had a real understanding and a cynical understanding of exactly how Vladimir Putin was running their country because they had grown up still in the era, era where there was something more resembling free media, for example, mm. right? Before uh, the, the free media was taken away piece by piece uh, by the Russian government. Uh, they had a, a real sense of the difference between government and people in Russia. That was the thing I took away from it. I, I remember one person that on the last night of the games told me, this is a Russian lady who uh, had actually sent her kids to, she was going to send her teenage kids to Estonia because they'd have a better better schooling and a better chance in the world uh, if they went there. They were 16-year-old twins, if I recall. And yeah. she said, I don't cheer for Russia, I cheer for Russians. Um, Speaking with Russians makes you realize that the people don't always have a choice with who governs them, right? And these kids were all smart. They were university students, and they were really aware of what had happened to their country because the propaganda wasn't everything they knew. And right. that was really, really interesting because, remember, this was a, a Winter Games, um, the last one that we've had with NHL players, where it cost about $52 billion was spent on it by the Russian government. It's estimated about a third of that was siphoned away to corruption. It was the biggest boondoggle uh, in some ways uh, in Olympic history, if you measure by kind of evident corruption. And it's the biggest reason why Beijing has the games in 2022, because R Russia scared away a bunch of other countries, including Sweden, which would have been a great hockey Olympics and Olympics, yeah. including uh, Norway, I believe, uh, which would have been similar. Uh, they scared away some other countries who didn't want to spend the same amount of money. And they also invaded a neighboring country because Ukraine was going to bid on the Olympics as well. And that's why in 2022, they wound up with Kazakhstan and Beijing. And that's why the NHL might be back in the Olympics because it's Beijing. Right. And so now, like, I don't anticipate the NHL changing plans or, you know, there's a, there's a lot of money to be made. That's just the reality of it. In it. And I just, yeah. I'm just curious now if there'll be any more trepidation, right? Like as, as those Olympics get closer or if it'll impact at all, whether or not the players go at all. I would suspect not. Again, because it's... Yeah. It's not even that the NHL is an apolitical league. It's a publicly apolitical league, though. 
Um, think about how few conversations from the rest of the world kind of intersect with hockey, right? When the idea, like, I, I think I did a story like two or three years ago about what it's like to be a black player in the NHL yeah, and how, how lonely that is, right? How incredibly lonely it is uh, if, you're, if you are the only person on your team who looks the way you do. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is, it's a league which I think will have no difficulty taking the money because they need it. And it's not like the NBA needs it because the NBA has got a billion and a half a year from ESPN, but they can use it, right? There's a lot of money to be made. And for at the end of the day, it's really easy, I think, for NHL teams to say, we're just here to spread the sport and play hockey and never worry. Um, one thing you'll notice, by the way, about the LeBron thing is none of the owners are having to answer for this. And I would anticipate none of the owners in the NHL would have to answer for this if they decide to really put a footprint down in China. I still think there's limited appeal there. I don't think there's a huge market necessarily. But the thing is, a small market in China is a really big market, right? If 10 million right. people watch you in China, that's a tiny fraction of the greater market. And it's an awesome context of a national American broadcast, right? right. So. It, the 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 scale in China is just so big that the NHL will chase it, and the league is almost almost perfectly built to not intersect with the politics. Right. So in some way, it's advantageous. Like it's perfect. Right. Oh. <laughs> well, that, well, that's going to be interesting. So, do you, when you dive into these topics, I know you're doing it because it's important. What kind of reaction do you typically get from your readership? Uh, I mean, I I tweet so much about political stuff that I think people know what to expect, and then the people who don't who disagree with me or I get a lot of disagreement. I get I get stick to sports, but yeah. again, I think the thing with stick to sports is it's it's a really comforting idea, right? Like I the reason I play fantasy sports still is because it's the one place where all I really care about is whether my fantasy football team or fantasy hockey team or fantasy basketball team is good, right? Right. Um, that, that's, a, that's a really comforting, simple place. It's a much simpler place to live where sports is just sports. And the parts of sports, it still exists within a, a kind of contained universe. And it gets messy when you get out of it. And so the reaction I get is is a lot that. And that, that I don't even bother worrying about um i get a kind of i get a wider reaction because i tend to put politics in the piece more often um from people who think politically differently than i do mm -hmm. um which is fine uh because i just like but here's the thing with sports writing this is a great gig we've got right like it's an unbelievably <laughs> fun gig it's, sure. it's the thing that i grew up caring about that you grew up caring about i'm sure that you like me read Sports Illustrated as a kid and mm. like I can still I can still quote you stories from Sports Illustrated growing up and as you get older and you realize how the world works it can feel frivolous right it can feel like something yeah. that is that is an absolute luxury it can feel like something that is that doesn't mean anything like it means so much to the fans who love it and it means so much to the athletes who compete in it and that is an incredibly compelling thing whether it's in hockey how these guys kill themselves to essentially sometimes win a coin flip, right? Win a way, <laughs> win win a bounce, the yeah. way the puck bounces off a skate. Like they kill themselves to do that. That and that 
that is an awesome thing to watch. And it's the same in basketball, same in football, same in baseball. The Olympics, people cry every day. It, and it feels like it means everything because it's, it's an incredibly human thing. But in the wider scheme of how the world works, it, it isn't important. And so the, one of the reasons that I, I don't stick to sports is because I, I think that there's more to it, right? And the best stuff you write in sports is about people yeah. and about issues, I think, quite often. Um, and and, and uh, great games is obviously a part of that. You can write great stuff in there. But the stuff that means the most is that, is things that tell human stories and things that explore real issues in society. And so yeah. that's when I write about this stuff in a bigger context. I try to keep that in mind because, and this is, and th- and, uh, this is, gonna, this is only for me. I, I think every sports writer has to make this decision. I would feel like my job was even less important if I never touched any of the other stuff. Right. Right. I would feel like it was even more frivolous, um, even as I delight in writing stories that are just sports. And I, I love sometimes writing stories that are just sports. But if I only did that, I would feel less. I would feel less invested in my job, and I don't want to feel less invested in my job. Um, uh, there's a lot there. I, I do. I want to rewind for a second because you ultimately, and I think I'm the same way. Like the stories that you enjoy the most are when you're able to tell stories about people i've i mean my favorite story you've ever written is your zidane ochara story what's your favorite story that that tells of a story of a person well i mean the chara piece i loved because i i got one quote from zidane ochara directly yeah and it was a quote where he denied that he had stitches on his face right um and that's the only quote i put in the story uh and that was that was really fun to try to unpack pieces of who Zidane Chara has been and who he is and how he's more than this cartoon in the midst of a playoff chase. That was a really fun one to do. I have a lot of ones like that in that, like my, the favorite story I've ever written, it's fun to, to, to get into athletes and figure out why they are the way they are, right? Yeah, I agree. Why they are, um, what drives them to this place. Like so often, like take the example of like Marty St. Louis. Marty St. Louis' greatest gift was also his greatest weakness, right? It was his stubbornness, right? His pride. And, and that, that drove him to, the, to being as the great player that he was, the Hall of Fame player that he was. And it made the end of his career ugly, right? How he, how he said, basically, I'm, I don't want to play in Tampa anymore. I'm out of here. Uh, basically because of an Olympic snub, right? Like, it, it, it's an incredible right. thing. Um, and and it's, really, it's really fun finding those finding those pathways to who these guys really are and how they're more than just a collection of fast twitch muscle fibers because everyone's driven by something. But the favorite story I've ever written is one that was a little more personal um, in terms of sports was about uh, a basketball This was like 11 years ago now. He was four years older than me um, and he was for a brief time the best player in the province and the team that my high school team, not the one I was on, but our senior team, was number one in the province, and him and his mom and his sister and his sister's boyfriend and his mom's boyfriend got on a boat over the Christmas holidays, and they disappeared. And they, it was in the Caribbean, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and they were never found. There was no, no trace was ever proven to have been found. There was one sighting of a boat overturned, but it was never actually followed up on. And the great thing about that story is I talked to everybody I could in his life as to how that affected them. Mm. And who he was, and why it affected them, and the like. One of the most fascinating things about the story is that every guy who played ba- high school basketball with him 
or the two guys who were on his high school basketball team and then transferred to another school and he never talked to them again, every one of them, 20 years later, was still having dreams about him. You know how you have dreams about school for like years after you leave school? <laughs> yeah, right? the, still uh, have and, those. And then they, that, well, and my, mine actually transferred into work dreams where I dream I can't find the press box again or I don't know where my laptop is. And, you know, like yes. they, just the, the, the daily anxiety dreams. For these people, 20 years later, they were still dreaming of this person who disappeared. And, that, and when you talked to them about him, he was right at the surface. And they like half of them would start crying in the moments you started talking about it, right? Mm. The power of one person and their disappearance and the effect that person had on their lives and the, and the unsolved nature of it, because it was never solved. Um, it, that's still the favorite story that I've ever done because it haunts me. Like I drive. Right. Um, Probably because there's I no still, closure, right? Like they, they, we, yeah, if you can't turn the exactly. page, then it's just as it's constantly below the surface. And, and, it, and, it, and it happens, right? It happens in society that people disappear and they're never found um, and they're just gone. Uh, and so, again, that's, it's a sports story and I, I wrote about it because he was a basketball player and a really good self-made basketball player who is different than even the other basketball players around him and different as a person too. But I wrote about it because as a human, he had this immense impact on people for the rest of their lives mm. because one, one light winked out, right? And so stories like that, I, 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 I'll carry with me forever. Like writing about Penn State, just going to Penn State the weekend after they, they fired Joe Paterno during the Jerry Sandusky scandal. And the, the undercurrents that were flowing in that town that you could feel from the second you walked into it, I was there reporting for 24 hours. It's still one of my favorite stories I've ever done. And it was, it was unbelievably intense. There are stories from the Olympics that I've written that are among my favorite stories ever. Like the one about, um, we have a long track speed skater. And uh, he came from the Netherlands and won gold in the 10,000 meters, which is the big race against his former compatriot. And I happened to have talked to his wife in uh, the, the race right before that, in his 5,000 meter race. And she, I talked to her after that race and she was crying in the stands. Like she was just crying. And I said, well, you must be really happy. She's like, no, that's not it. I'm not crying about him. And I said, what is it? And it was that one of her childhood friends from this tiny village in the Netherlands um, had uh, had a baby basically uh, come early. It was mm -hmm. not a miscarriage, but I'm trying to remember the exact details. But the baby came early and, was, uh, and died. And mm -hmm. uh, they had to remove her uterus. She's never going to have kids. And after the race was done, so for the four days before the race, the of this this speed skater had been frantically texting back and forth with her friend and trying to figure out what she could do and the baby died that morning and after the race her friend texted her and said he did it right and she was just looking at that text with all these little balloon emojis and fireworks emojis this happiness from her friend who had just lost almost everything and she just wept in this arena in Pyeongchang and like stories like that are there's such a privilege to write yeah right there's such a there's such a privilege to, to have people tell you these things that make us human, right? Like one of the things with sports is that, like think about Elliot Kipchoge and this two-hour marathon. Yeah, there's all kinds of Nike technology to it and it's, it's a bit of an artificial thing, but it's, it's exploring the limits of humanity. How fast can someone run 26 miles? What's the limit of what a human being can do? And that's what sports is all the time. 
And it's not just physical. It's also mental. It's emotional. It's all these other things. And that's why sports stands in for a lot of, of the world because we all face pressure and we all face um, difficult moments. That, that terrible word that's overused in sports, adversity, right? Um, mm. Sports has a power to it. The idea of, of people overcoming real obstacles um, has a power to it and can inspire people. And, and so, yeah, like that's a really long answer <laughs> of me talking to myself. Uh, but, but it's, it's, it's really fun to tell stories about people because it's, it's the most interesting thing in the world. I, so when you say, and I start, and, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I, because I'm projecting, but when you say at times, perhaps we struggle with the meaning, how meaningful our jobs are because we're covering sports. And then to me, that moment where she has that text from her friend, that's, that's why sports is important. You know what I mean? Like, here's this, here's this unbelievable loss and they get for that moment in time, she can celebrate with her friend, an incredible accomplishment. Like, and we get to share that, you know, it's joy. It's that joy. Like I got to cover the Toronto Raptors this year winning a championship for the first time in a major sport since 1993 was incredible. I've covered championships for other teams in all different sports. It's always that joy. Um, But to see it happen around you, to see it erupt around you, and this happens every time a Canadian NHL team is in the playoffs. When you're in the city, you can feel it, right? You can just Mm -hmm. feel, you can feel it everywhere you go. Um, Or three million people at the parade. It was, it was unbelievable to, to, to feel that collective joy because how many things, one of the things with sports, one of the reasons that it's so lucrative on television, one of the reasons the NBA gets a billion and a half a year and one of the reasons that the NHL is going to triple its TV deal or whatever it's going to do is that that we all gather around to watch, mm-hmm. right? As a society. Um, think about, uh, like a local station here in Toronto started rebroadcasting Cheers from the beginning. This perfect sitcom, right? The end of Cheers was an event. Like, yeah. tens of millions of people watched. The end of MASH is was still one of the highest rated TV shows that's ever existed. That doesn't happen anymore, right? Netflix and cable universe and the internet, everything's been fragmented. And sports is one thing. Half of Canada watched the 2010 Olympic gold medal final in men's hockey. Half. Right, right. That... And 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 there was I remember a camera shot of the city like from looking at downtown across the water across False Creek where I grew up actually, and when the golden goal was scored, you could hear the noise in this yeah. quiet city. You could hear it right. That collective joy that tr- again this is one of the things that's sports' greatest strength and its greatest weakness. That tribal sense of belonging. One thing Western society does very badly is. It's hard to find things where we all feel like we're in it together. More and more, it feels like, right? Um, yeah. Sports can do that. And that's where sticking to sports is actually a disservice to that because if you are not, it's a, it's a help to that because sports can be just sports, right? It can, you can have, you can be celebrating the street, high-fiving someone and it doesn't matter who they voted for. Um, right. But the, the, the counter, the, the flip side of that is think about how a fan base and a fan base pick a sport Cheers for a player to be innocent if they're accused of sexual assault, right? That's the right. that's the flip side of the tribal nature of sports, right? And that's how it and that's how if you stick to sports and a sexual assault charge is adversity for a player to overcome. That's a disservice to the world to write it that way. It's a disservice to right. the, 
sports writing industry right. and it's a disservice to the reader and it's a disservice to every every woman you've ever met or not met right like so that's there's the there's this is such a fun thing to do um the, the writing the raptors again it was a privilege and it's a privilege to get to tell the stories of all these people it was a privilege to be able to write um about things that people care about uh and that's that is such a fun and interesting and never-ending thing I lied. I was thinking it when you were answering. My favorite story that you ever wrote was the one about your dad. Oh, thank you. That might be the favorite story I've ever written too, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's the one that took me a lifetime to write, right? Um, so <clears throat> one of the reasons I wrote it um, was my dad had dementia and it took about five years and then eventually died. And he just went downhill as if anyone who has had a relative or knows someone who's had a degenerative neurological disease, you see, you see them, you lose them in pieces, right? Um, but my father, I didn't know what the story was about um, until I wrote it. Uh, what I mean by that is whenever I, w- I went and visited him a ton over the years, when it, once he moved back to Victoria in 2016, I would go two or three times a year, just steal a weekend, go for a few days, go at the end of a Leafs road trip. I always take the Leafs road trip to Vancouver for partly for that reason I did. Um, and you just go see him, and I would write down things I remembered, right? And I would start writing what it was like just for someone to have dementia and how, what it was like to lose them. But that wasn't what the story was about, as I wrote it and wrote it and wrote it uh, over these three years, and then he died. And then I figured out what it was about. And um, it was about what we inherit. Mm. <clears throat> and I'll say this. You remember when uh, Boston Chicago played in the Stanley Cup final? Yeah. And uh, it was two original six teams in the Stanley Cup final, very rare thing. And I, we all asked players like early on, what does it mean to be on two original six teams in the Stanley Cup? Best answer he said, here's the thing with playing. There's every team has a fan base. Every team has fans who are crazy for it. When you talk to fans from an original six teams, they talk about their parents or their grandparents, right? This is something that was handed down to them. You grew up in a family that was a Leafs family or a Bruins family or a Blackhawks family or a Canadians family, or a Red Wings family, right? Like, it's, it, it runs deeper. And with my father, um, he, was, he was someone who grew up in a family. Like, he, he was always kind of bad at communicating. He was bad at expressing to us how much he loved us. But we could always talk sports. No matter what, we could always talk sports. And I think that's the language of a lot of fathers, is no matter how bad or good you are at expressing real honest human emotion and communication, you can talk sports with your son, right? Yeah, or even right. with your daughter too. But that, that it's most common, obviously, as a trope with sons. Um, and my dad loved hockey and loved basketball and loved curling. And he would, he would take us to games and we would play those sports. And, and that was our language, him, me, and my, me, him and my brother. Um, that was the language we spoke most easily. And when he died, he left my family when uh, he left my mom when uh, when I was five years old. Some of my earliest memories are remembering him leaving, like this, as he was packing up his toothbrush. Um, and I wondered after he died why he was so absent in my life, right? Uh, why, why? Uh, as much as he did love me, and I, I've I've heard from people before and since that he was immensely proud of his two sons. And he tried to be the best dad he could. He just wasn't very good at it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, 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 I started talking to his sister and I talked to my mom and I talked. You figured out is that his mom, and I kind of knew this, his, my grandmother, 
she was a hard lady. She was a hard, hard woman. Um, not emotional in the least. Pragmatic yeah. as hell and tough. And that's what he grew up with. And her husband died when my father was four, cancer. He was a mill worker. And she remarried and uh, my father's stepfather beat him until they had another child and they realized he shouldn't do that. And so, and moved them to the Yukon. And that's what my father grew up with, is that was his father experience, right? Um, it was a father abandoning him. And anyone who's ever been abandoned, you, it makes you more reticent to um, to commit to people, right? Like a fear of abandonment is a really powerful thing. And it sticks with you for your whole life in a lot of cases. Um, and so that's, that's where my father came from, is from that. And then his mother... Was she left the house at sixteen because her parents were awful to her, and that's where she came from, right? And so, trauma is inherited, just as love is, right? And so that's what that story was about. That's what I figured out for three days of just thinking about my dad, right, and just thinking about what it was. And that's what happens when a parent dies: is you really think about what it was and what you carry with you after they're gone. And so that story, it took me three days after he died to write it. Mm -hmm. um, and it took a lifetime to kind of write it before that. And it took a long time to figure out that kind of thing. But again, that's where sports is. It means something. It does mean something that my dad and I could talk sports. It, when I would go visit him and he could barely talk anymore, we'd watch curling on TV, right? And he'd, he'd, he'd say, great shot, right? Like that, that stuck with him. And we could always be comfortable in that place. And that's one of the great things about sports is that it gives people a lingua franca, right? It gives people a shared language and a place to be together. Um, and it is, in some cases, the idea of that primitive idea of people sitting around a fire, right? Um, right. And sharing. And, and the, the fire can be sports. More as, as, as powerfully as almost any other entertainment product in the world, I would say, actually. Um, yeah. And that's part of why we do what we do. It's funny. I remember reading that story, and, and what struck me, was how good a dad you are. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I remember thinking. Like, this is how you were raised, and I see how you interact with your kids, and you broke the cycle, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. Like, I think I could still be, not to get too far into my, my, my parenting life, but, like, I've, I've, the biggest regrets I've ever had in my life are getting angry at my kids and not being patient enough with them, right? Like, sure. But you learn that, and you learn... You learn why you aren't patient, and you and you and you realize that like once your parent, when you have kids, you understand your parents. Yeah, you understand that's so what true. you are to your oh parents, my gosh. right? Yeah, um, like you you realize what you mean to them, and then what you mean to your kids, and you just I had to learn to be a good dad, and the important. I keep trying to be a better dad, right? Like I just keep, that's the thing is I was listening to this podcast, this is not a podcast, it was a radio interview about this woman who uh, was talking about human relationships and we put so much into our jobs and we talked on this just in this last few minutes about like how we, what we put into our jobs, right? Um, all of us we, in life, you put so much into our jobs because you have to, if you want to be good at your job, if you have professional pride, especially if you hold yourself to a standard, you put a lot into it. And then you, you then you come home at the end of the day, right? And what do you have left for the most important people in your life, right? And so one thing I've tried to do is I try to balance that. I've 
this is a job which can eat you. It can take as much as you can give to it, right? Right. Um, you can always write more. You can always talk to more people. You can always spend more time at the rink. You can always spend more time at the arena. You can always, up until recently, uh, when newspapers started to have more trouble, and I didn't want to be an absent dad, even though I, in a in a big year, used to be gone for like 100 days. And so when the playoffs are over for hockey and basketball and when free agency is done, I build up my vacation and then I take the summer off, right? I'm yeah. gone from early July until Labor Day because I want my kids to remember me in the summer. I want, I want to be there, right? Um, I want to have a certain amount of balance because uh, like we can get, we could we could talk parenting for 10 hours if you want but uh, <laughs> the best advice anyone ever gave me as a parent was the simplest which was they grow up so fast if you really think about that yeah. if you really think about that as an idea they grow up so fast it disappears so fast the days are long and the years are a blink and all of a sudden they don't sit on you anymore right and it goes incredibly quickly and so I, I, I figured that out early and wanted to be home, present when I could be present. And I still yeah. am working on that. Like, I work on that every day. People have seen how much I tweet. Um, the good thing for me is I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my tweets. And that's the important <laughs> Clearly, from, from what I could tell. And- no, just- <laughs> so, so one of the things I struggle with, I mean, you talk about even – is shutting it off, right? Even when you're home being present, what have, what have you found in your strategies to kind of create that barrier, that boundary between a job that can seep into every moment of your life if you let it? Well, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, yeah, it, literally every person it feels like in the Western world has is don't look at your phone, right? Like, yeah, right, sure. Um, uh, technology companies have figured out exactly the, the path way to the center of our brains um and it's it's a really easy thing to look at your phone all the time and so like i try to when my kids are talking to me right like i try to listen because they're talking to me right like they're not gonna always want to talk to me um but you just like i you need to have your email on you need to have your texts on because if sometimes things happen at different times of night or day or different places uh people want to talk to you and sometimes you have to take time away from that and just in the time when you, when you aren't doing it, don't do it, right? Yeah, like, right. Like, I may have trouble falling asleep because I'm planning the column for the next day, but that doesn't affect my parenting, right? <laughs> Except that I'm more right. tired the next day. Um, save it for the moments where you're training your mind to think about your job in different, in the places where you aren't with your kids, I find is really helpful, Right. But it, it's it's still a, it's a struggle for all of us is to be present as much as we can, right? Yeah. Like think about when you're out for dinner with someone, and there's always that. How many times has this happened to you? We're having a great time with this person and having a great conversation, and then at some point someone's got to go to the bathroom, and that's when it's the okay time to check your phone, right? right? Like that's about as good as it gets now is when or when you both agree to check your phone. Hold on, I check my phone. Yeah, for a minute, yeah. At the same time. And now time. we're back, right? Yeah. Right. Like the the the, the mutually agreed moment. Um, it's, it's like all of us. Like, so I think about sports, but I also think about other stuff other than sports. And I have this constant input loop when I'm working, especially. Um, and then you just need to, 
you need to not be looking at it. Like the simplest thing in the world is don't look at the screen and it's also the hardest thing. And yeah. so that's, that's what I try to do. And then in the summer, I tweet less. I exercise more. I'm outdoors more. Um, I, it just it, like my lifestyle becomes this healthy thing. Um, this incredibly healthy thing. It's like I've, I've lost 10 pounds and five pounds in the last two summers because I exercise and I do stuff with my kids. And we go to beaches and swim in the pool and do all this stuff. Um, and you realize that's how it should be. And then during the rest of the year when I'm working all the time, you just, the days you're off, try to be off. Try to not worry about it too much mm-hmm. because you can catch up, right? Like you can catch up um, if you need to. Um, also tape games. Taping games is super helpful. That's Do you really? I don't, I can't, you want. I can't tape games. I have a real issue. Like really? I'll go back and watch something if I'm writing about it. Like I'll go just in terms yep. of research but i have a mental block like if it's a game i'm interested in if i know it's already happened i can't interesting but see i find that it's my own issues i find that you can watch it differently if it's taped too right like you can just you can look for different things you don't have to Mm -hmm. like even if you know what's going to happen um you can kind of just you can see it in a slightly different way but also just like it just it just frees up your life right like one of the great one of the advantages of the technological age is we can watch things when we want yeah, we can, and that, that that can also work with sports. Did you um, was someone in your family a writer? Or what did you, how did you get the kind of the idea to even go down uh, this path? Because no. I, I think it's one of those things that if it's if it's not presented to you, it seems like it's something that other people do. Uh, I, we all have these weird paths into becoming it, right? Like some people have parents that were writers. I didn't. My dad was a uh, was a university professor and eventually a university administrator, and my mother was a was a basically a paralegal. Um, and they've both taken stabs at writing about things in their lives, but they're not writers, I would say. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know how it happened except that, um, and I don't even know how this person, I had a, an ex-girlfriend. Her name was Rochelle Ray. I, she is the biggest influence on my career, literally, of anybody ever. Um, and we'd broken up, but we, st- we stayed friends. And I was working at a supermarket because I had gone to school at SFU for like, uh, two weeks after doing three years of community college before that because I was working my way through school. I went to SFU for two weeks in Burnaby, BC and it was the most depressing place in the world and I decided I didn't want to be a teacher after all. I dropped out and I was working at a supermarket and Rochelle called me and she said, hey, you're a good writer and you like sports. We need people to write sports at the UBC student paper. And I was like, do I have to be a student? She's like, no. I don't know how she knew I was a good writer. I mean, maybe the emails <laughs> I wrote to her were good. right? Maybe she read some of the papers that I wrote when we were together at a community college. I don't actually know. I've never asked her that. I probably should. Um, and so I showed up and wrote about a basketball player who I'd played against in high school because it had taken me that long to work my way to UBC and he was in his fifth year by then. Yeah. And uh, lost it at midnight to a floppy disk drive, which tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and stayed till three in the morning to rewrite it. And they said, you can stay. And so I enrolled in UBC that fall, and I was the next year I was the sports editor, and the next year I was the editor in chief, and a year after that I graduated and got a job at the National Post and drove to Toronto. Like that, it was. I think all of us in journalism, there's a moment, there's a moment you walk into a place, and for a lot of us it's a student newspaper. I think Mm -hmm. Um, not everybody, but a lot of us. I walked into that student newspaper and I was like, "This is what I've been looking for in my life. Yeah, this is where I want to be." Like, and I spent so much of my life there for the next three years and it was the greatest it was the greatest 
Like it's the honestly, student newspapers are like the best years of your life, kids. Honest, honest to God. Even if you never go into journalism, and um, and then I I got a job at the National Post, an internship, and I drove across the country and I started doing it, and that was two thousand one, and hmm. I've been doing it ever since. But like it was, if she had never called me, would I have become a writer or would I have stayed working at a supermarket? I don't know. I never answered that question, and I don't know if I ever will have to. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> But it's a, it's a, it's a good a happy backup accident, plan, right? It's yeah. yeah. If yeah, well, you know what? They broke the union since I left, so it's no longer the lifelong career. You don't have like fifty-year-old Chester smoking through his mustache <laughs> on the loading dock anymore at Safeway. It's a lot, lot younger people. Um, but a lot of us, it's a happy accident that we got into this, right? Right. The right door got opened. We knew the right person. Uh, a, a lot of it is privilege, right? Like, there's a lot of privilege in our business uh, that if you had parents. There's a lot of people in our business who who could afford to do it, who could afford to take the risk to yeah. become a journalist. Because what I tell student journalists is, if you don't need to do this, don't do it. If you don't need to do it, not want, need, don't right. do it. Because even if you need to do it, there's a great chance you won't. Like how many general sports columnists are there in Canada? Maybe 10, maybe 15 now. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, let's say, even 20 you have a much better chance of being an NHL player. You have a much better chance of being a Canadian all-star at some point in your career in the NHL than you do about becoming a, a national or a, a general interest sports columnist in Canada. So many of us are, are yeah. so lucky to be doing this, which is why even when it can feel frivolous, you never take it for granted, right? You never, you always try to put your shoulder into it and do your best. Um, and you try to just do it as best as you can because it, we're so lucky to get to do this, to just to, to get to have these jobs. Yeah. So last week I was at Michigan State and was speaking in a class and went around the room asking the kids what they wanted to do. And you had five or 10 people that wanted to do play by play and 10 to 15 that wanted to do TV analysis and, a, you know, a few writers. And, and you're, you're looking around and every year, every college is pumping out these kids and these these jobs open, you know, like the play by play guy for the years, right? Like they're so when I when, when I'm like, if you're not completely passionate about it, or what you said, if you don't have to do it, it's it can be a tough goal. Like, don't just get into this if you enjoy games, because it's it's going to be a long, long time before you get a job. Well, it was a it's, tough business to get into before it got tough, right? Before right. the walls started crumbling all around us, before newspapers started to kind of enter the great famine, and now you're starting to see a little bit of that hit broadcast television too, right? Um, where people are going to cut the cord from ESPN. And ESPN has lost a lot of good people. And Sports Illustrated is being run by content mill, like, grifters. Um, it's getting harder, right? Yeah. It's getting harder to be in this business, to even, like, to survive in this business. So, like, I, I, I've often wondered if journalism attracts people who are anxious or if journalism causes anxiety in people. And I'm not talking, like, medical-grade anxiety. I'm just talking, like, low-level level everyday anxiety um it's just part of the business that like if you're good like you worry right like you you worry about how you how well you're going to do about the next day story about everything going forward and then you add in the existential worry this life at the end of the world that we seem to be experiencing in the business in a lot of places um this is not a growth industry and the one of the problems you get is that there's still so many young talented journalists that are being created in the world thank goodness we just don't have <laughs> right. enough places to put them. We got to keep finding. We got to find new places to put them. Um, 
Yeah. When I go back to the student paper at UBC, uh, it's awesome. They're doing awesome work. Like it, it's, it, they're tackling much more complicated subjects than we ever did. They're doing multimedia stuff that we never did. It's it, they're they're attacking things with nuance and and with the same spirit. That same spirit that made you want to be there from the time you walked in the door. Right. It's still the same thing. They still know what it is, and don't as an industry like we need to find a way as an industry to have the most possible sources and jobs and everything to exist and no one's figured that out yet i wouldn't say no one's figured it out we're we're trying here at the athletic Bruce. <laughs> yeah but you guys can't employ everybody right like you guys can't employ every single sports journalist on the planet there will at some points be problems with conflict of interest i would think Somehow, uh, I yeah you're know. probably right no you're I mean, right I, I, I root for it all to succeed but i want everyone to succeed i want everyone to get rich i do too well that's i mean not to get into it but like that's that's the great misconception. Like we, our staff couldn't be more passionate about newspapers. Like we're all newspaper people. We all love journalism. Yeah. We all want it to succeed. Like I think I want to live in a world where there's enough meat on the bone for everybody. Right. And yeah. In well, some the, way. the hope you get with everything is that competition makes it better. Yeah. Um, it's just that we haven't quite, we're we're still heading through the the great famine, um, and we haven't reached the other end of it yet. I'm not sure that we will, but yeah. If you're in journalism, I would I would actually say it different. If you're cheering for journalism to die, you are on the wrong side of what is good. Um, and if you're cheering for journalism to do well, you're on the right side. <laughs> I would I would agree with that. Very well put. All right. <laughs> Last thing, because I'm going to double dip because I'm working on something, and I tend to ask this question anyways. Um, but I'm going to be a little bit more specific in it. And I know you're a good okay. reader, a voracious reader. What's the best book you've read in the last year? I read fewer books than I used to. It probably yeah. is ranged by David Epstein. Yeah, uh, I would say he sent me a copy. Uh, I would, I, I, but I would also add um, "Before the Lights Go Up" by Sean Fitzgerald was really good. Um, uh, like it, it, it's basically a Canadian Friday Night Lights. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. Range, range blew my mind in about 15 different ways. Um, it blew my mind in terms of just how, how my kids are getting educated, right? In terms of how we learn things. It was fascinating. Uh, Epstein goes to places that you'd never imagine. Mm. Um, Before the Lights Go Out is, is the only book I've read that tells you about the crossroads that hockey's at in Canada, which is incredibly interesting. Um, you should have in what ways? I haven't read it. Like, I want to check that say. out for Fitzy. But what? What's? It, what do you mean by the crossroads? Well, I mean, hockey has become kind of fused to the idea of national identity in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's been. It's become something that is is as Canadian. It's like as as American as apple pie, as Canadian as hockey, right? But the monetization of the game and professionalization of the game in the face of a changing kind of a changing country in terms of immigration, in terms of diversity, all these things collide. The amount of money you have to pay for hockey, the amount of money you have to pay for rinks, the competitiveness at the even very young levels, how at five and six years old, you're putting your kids in select hockey, travel right. hockey, right. Um, how, how crazy parents get over it, how many other sports there are to play. How many other Canadians are doing well at other sports, allowing you to say, well, maybe I want to become a tennis player like Bianca Andreescu. Maybe I right. want to become a basketball player like Steve Nash or Jamal Murray. Uh, maybe I want to become 
um, a pro golfer like Brooke Henderson, right? Like in Canada, he uses the Peterborough Peets, which used to be a powerhouse OHL team, like one of the dominant OHL teams. Steve Eiserman played there, lots of other guys. Um, and they have been left behind in some ways by the way demographics are changing. People in Canada who didn't grow up with the game, um, an aging fan base as a result, uh, the cost and especially professionalization. Like think about how many NHL players have you talked to who got a skills coach when they were a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. The young kids, right? Mm-hmm. Or before, or yeah, a mental like 12 coach. years old and they're talking about their sk- yeah. shooting coach, right? Yeah. Like how, how do you keep up with that? Right? Like hockey has increasingly become a sport for the rich. Like the story of Gordie Howe getting hockey skates in a bag that was given to them by their neighbors during the great depression doesn't really happen anymore, right? That's a hard thing to duplicate now. <laughs> right. um, and, and in Canada, as we change as a country, um, hockey is still pr- a primal sport. It's still the number one sport, and it might always be the number one sport. But it is. there are things that are dragging at it, and it is not changing in ways that, that allow it to kind of adapt to the way Canada is changing. And mm. so, like... Where's the cheap hockey equipment other than used equipment, right? Like, where are the programs to get newcomers to Canada into the game? They exist, but it's not. We tend in Canada to do things the way it's always been done uh, because it's been successful in hockey. Um, like, it wasn't, it wasn't Canada who introduced um, the kind of idea of the beautiful game. It was Red Army. Right, right. Like, right. like there's that great quote and I'm going to mangle it, but that was on the, on the wall of the Canadian team at, at several events, which is like, when it comes down to it, the Canadian, uh, in a, in a great game will be the one who wants it more. Right. That was always what we told ourselves. And now you see what's happening in America with hockey. You see how Austin Matthews comes out of Scottsdale, Arizona. You see how, when you have NHL teams in the Sun Belt and all over America, it creates youth hockey leagues and that creates right. a development for youth. America is going to have better players than Canada at some point, unless Canada still creates the special sauce that is that is kind of carved into our bones. And Fitzy explores a lot of a lot of the dynamics of where hockey's moving mm. and how it's how how money's changing it, how immigration's changing it, and how it kind of affected this small town team in this dingy old arena, in this once proud town, and uh, he really. It pulls it together nicely. Um, but it's it's really fascinating. Like I keep telling people, Canada spits out the special one every 10 years or so. Yeah. Like you are you go back, you go like you can start with Bobby Orr. You can start before that if you want. You can start with, you know, Maurice Richard or whoever you want. Uh, but Bobby Orr uh, leads to Wayne Gretzky, leads to Mario Lemieux, leads to, I would argue, Eric Lindros, who was cut short, leads to Sidney Crosby, leads to Connor McDavid, right? Yeah. Are the best player in the world for most of the last 50 years and going back long before that, probably the 50 before that, almost definitely the 54 before that, has been Canadian. Uh, unless, unless there's something special about our system, that may end uh, at some point. And part of the reason is that we're just, we're driving a, a few more people away from the game and it's getting a little harder and late stage capitalism affects hockey too. Well, I'll check out that book. That's a good pitch. Fits, can you fit that on the back cover for his uh, second edition? I wrote a blurb on the back cover, but so did Roy McGregor, treasurer of Canadian journalism, and his blurb kicked my blurb <laughs> right out the window. It was so much better. 
Well, Bruce, thanks for doing this. Now people can get a, if you want to know what it's like when Bruce and I are traveling on the road together to games and, and sharing bad media meals or a beer <laughs> after, that's that basically what's, what that last hour is exactly what it was. I still can't believe that you ate that meal in Ottawa. I still can't believe you did it. We, we agree. <laughs> Multiple we times. We, we also, in fairness, we also talk about motorhome and motorhome life because mm-hmm. that is an inspiration that you have, you have given me. And also the fact that you are really, you think about a lot of things that are incredibly healthy and good. And I always enjoy talking to you, Craig. I'll always do it. Wow, Bruce. Feelings mutual. So thanks. And go get your kids from swimming or whatever you got to do. I am not going to be responsible for you being late. I got to take the kid to swimming and then I got to bring the kid back from swimming. (laughs) The one kid though, it's easy. All right. Well, good luck. Thanks, Bruce. See you, man. I want to thank Bruce for joining the podcast. It was great to catch up. I wish we could have done that in person, maybe over a beer, but we'll have to make do with our phone conversations, cramming that in between sporting events and taking the kids to swimming and running around. I'm, I'm glad we were finally able to get that done. So thanks again, Bruce. Make sure you follow Bruce on Twitter read all his work. It's it's awesome. And I also want to thank everybody that's gone out and left a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or everywhere. That's I, I can't tell you how helpful that is, especially since we're now kind of relaunching it back out to the public outside of the Athletics app. Um, it's just really good to reestablish it. So thank you. I really greatly appreciate it. A lot of you guys have done that. You've left reviews. If you haven't yet, I, it would be awesome if you could go wherever it is, just quick, subscribe to this if you're not, and then leave a review that it truly helps me out a lot, helps grow this podcast, um, and is it's it's super important. And I specifically want to thank, um, I don't know how to pronounce this, maybe Aha Pens on Apple Podcasts who left a five-star review. This is my favorite because it I get to self-promote a couple of things. And the review was, Craig is really, really good at this, and you should also buy his book, which that's that's a great review right there. Um, the book is Behind the Bench, so I agree with that completely. If you haven't bought it, you should definitely buy it. Um, it's available anywhere books are sold. So thank you for that. And thank you to everyone else who, who left a review. Um, one other thing really quick, um, we're for subscribers to The Athletic. We are building out our archive section. I believe this week we are bringing back the Elliot Friedman podcast, which I think pairs really well with this, with this Bruce, Bruce Arthur. A lot of similar conversation, um, uh, kind of a lift behind the the curtain of what it's like to to cover sports for a living and some of the challenges that go with that. And Elliot, it was it was amazing. This was a conversation that I did do in person in Toronto with Elliot in the media room at the rink there, and um, I, it had an impact on me. and And I was really glad that he took the time to do that. So definitely, if you're a subscriber to the Athletic, definitely check that out. It should be on the app right now. Uh, if you hadn't listened to it yet. Um, and that's it. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks again to Bruce Arthur for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening and have a great week.